Welcome to Nightlight. Josh Groban. His first album. Worth the purchase of the album just for that one song. Drawn by thee, our souls aspiring. Soar to uncreated light. The people that dwell in darkness have seen a great light, Isaiah said. And this is the time of the year when we celebrate the coming of the light, both among Jews in Hanukkah and among Christians with the Incarnation. Drawn by thee, our souls aspiring, soar to uncreated light. If you'll just take that phrase into your mind and, and meditate on it, say it out loud over and over, think about it, imagine it, you'll experience the healing presence of God in a way that I, th I think you've never known before. It's at this time of the year that I have to really prepare myself for the absence of the understanding of what I'm talking about. It's not only that the season has been taken over by Babylon and perverted into something unrecognizable, but it's that even among believers there is such a, often, not always thankfully, but often a complete lack of understanding of what, what it is that's even missing. It's, uh, as some people have said to me, is it, is it just that I've grown older and the magic of the season just doesn't touch me anymore? No, I don't believe that's it at all. I believe that the, the season has been so uh, denuded of its true heart that it not only doesn't feed us, but actually takes away nutrients from us spiritually. And so I have to prepare myself in ways that uh, protect that core of me that is drawn to uncreated light. And I do that in lots of ways. We do it as a family in lots of ways. And uh, thankfully, I'm acquainted with a number of believers who protect it also. But you see, part of the reason that we have to protect it is because um, the whole church has been seduced. I mean, a large part of the church has been seduced by an entertainment concept that I've talked about so many times that I don't want to get into it again because some of you are going, oh, he's going to do it again. Uh, the entertainment element that has replaced worship. And uh, there is no awe in entertainment. There's nothing in entertainment that makes me want to get on my knees and cover my head and cry, holy, holy, holy. Uh, I mentioned in our time last month during Thanksgiving that I, I never do uh, seasonal messages very well. I just, I'm, I'm not good at it. But when it comes to certain subjects, since I'm always on those subjects, then if they happen to fit into the season, then the season is accommodating the subject rather than the subject trying to accommodate the season. And I can do that. And when, when it comes to, to awe and wonder and holiness and the fear of God, 
in its right understanding. I have no trouble going there. And anything I can do to help you go there, uh, I'm honored to get to do it. And I mentioned last month that when I was a boy, growing up in a cultural Christian community, by cultural I mean everybody was Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, so forth. Everybody went to church, and among those who went to church, there were some bright, shining lights. I look back now and realize that who loved God and who really sought to obey Him. And to whatever degree they touched me, they changed me for the better. And on a few occasions, uh, I would have an encounter with the incarnational presence of God in the normal mundane activities of growing up in a, a culture that was for the most part unaware and uh, lacking in in an understanding of that presence. I remember when I was about 13 sitting again, as I mentioned last month, sitting in church, this time in a regular church service, but it was nearing the Christmas season. And uh, our music director at uh, school was singing a solo. Uh, Thirteen years old, you know, I'm I'm all over the place. I'm not thinking about church or God or much of anything. But his voice uh, captured my imagination, and and I remember the lyrics. I don't remember all the lyrics, but this is what he was singing: "Hush, my soul, behold the wonder. There, within a manger stall." Son of God, great creator, Lord of all. And I remember the effect that hearing those words had on my first, my imagination, then on my will. I want you to think about this. My imagination was captured by the lyrics, and that called my in my intellect forward and and challenged my will hush my soul behold the wonder there within a manger stall son of god great creator lord of all and i i, I was just overwhelmed with this conception of a baby lying on straw surrounded by farm animals and the smells because I grew up on a farm grew up helping run my grandfather's farm and uh, well I mean I worked on it I didn't run anything he you know <laughs> but the smells you know all the the mundane uh, sometimes pungent sometimes not very pleasant odors of a barnyard I'm thinking about that in the context of a baby lying in a manger and he is the creator of heaven and earth. And and I was shaken by it. And then my intellect was called forward by what had awakened my imagination. And my, I began to, to contemplate that. I, I remember it almost made me dizzy thinking about it as I walked out of the building that night. And then the Holy Spirit called my will 
forward in the sense of now you've seen this what are you going to do in response to it i had already been baptized i had already responded to the gospel the, the most i knew how to as a 12 year old boy growing up in a mississippi culture i had, i had given my heart to the lord the best i knew how but i was still a mess in in my mind in my body in my behavior in my understanding and God came to my imagination. You understand that the enemy of your soul understands how this works. And so he goes after the imagination first. That's why he seeks to take over what he doesn't already control of the arts, music, literature, film, television, drama, uh, he knows that the way to, to gain entrance and take over the will is to go after the imagination and the intellect follows. And then the will is uh, called into response to whatever's happening in the imagination and the, and the mind. And so Paul says, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are good, if there's any virtue in them, if they're at all praiseworthy, Think on these things. Think on these things. Uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel said, I could have gone into the sciences or the humanities, but I chose rather to study and contemplate wonder. And so he became a theologian, but not just a theologian, but a prophetic voice. And one of the things that he said, and I'm paraphrasing it, but this is what he said concerning the study of the Word of God. He says, the Word of God read in a spirit of worship is far better than a gathering of proof texts in order to support a dogma. Did you get that? The Word of God read in the spirit of worship, of awe, of holy fear is far better than becoming a gatherer of proof texts in order to support a dogma. The, the Word of God, the Scriptures, are the very atmosphere in which faith lives and moves and has its being. What do I mean by dogma? Well, I mean uh, a, a list of belief systems. Uh, Doctrine is not necessarily the same as dogma. Uh, every now and then you'll see a funny bumper sticker that says, my, my karma ran over my dogma. It's hilarious. But a dogma is a, is a set of belief systems that may or may not be rooted in truth, but they are dogmatically uh, the foundation of a, of a religious system. Uh, every religious system has its dogmas. Christianity has developed its dogmas. Some of our dogmas are rooted in biblical truth and therefore are doctrinally correct. But how many of you have ever encountered somebody who's doctrinally correct and talking to them is like French kissing a doorknob? I mean, it's, it's like butting your head against a fence post. 
there's nothing there of life. And you, you think, how could you take something so magnificent, so awe-inspiring, so moving to the human soul, and let it disintegrate down to a set of things we can argue over? I'm not saying there's not a place for good, healthy interaction and difference of opinion and thinking with two hands, as we have always referred to when it comes to theological issues, to think Hebraically, to think Hebraically is to think with two hands. To think Hebraically is to think about God and about life. And so there's a place for that, but the lively conversation of, of uh, two Hebraic thinkers differing on some opinion usually produces a, a, a revelation in both of them and enhances their joy and their sense of purpose, and they leave their interaction uh, strengthened and blessed, and uh, even if they don't ever come to an agreement, they come to a greater understanding, which causes them to have a greater sense of awe and worship. Um we have managed to to castrate that dynamic and turn it into uh, just arguments in in so many circles. I mean, that's what's been true in my experience. I'm sure it's been true in the experience of many people listening to me. The Word of God read in a spirit of worship is far greater than gathering of proof texts in order to support a dogma. For the words of revelation of Scripture are the very atmosphere. That's the word I want to focus on just for a minute. Sitting there in that church service that night, I remember the atmosphere. But and you know, you got to forgive me. I, maybe it's this time of year. I tend to kind of wax lyrical about my boyhood and about certain memories that uh, tend to float back through through my mind this time of year, good ones and bad ones. And one of the things that I always do remember is the atmosphere uh, that uh, was that permeated most of my early boyhood. Uh, early on, it was an atmosphere of fear at night, terror at night, and then uh, play and childish indifference during the day. Then as I grew a little older, uh, the atmosphere became uh, socially energized by the input of people around me whose atmospheres was devoid of the presence of God, even though everybody went to church. And so uh, the atmosphere of my boyhood did not awaken awe in me. It awakened lust or it awakened anger or it awakened competition, or it awakened uh, flippancy, or racism, or any other number of things I could list that would be in that category of neg negative anti-life. So sitting there in that church service that night, just amazing to me where the Holy Spirit moves and what he moves through, and how he's so humble that he will move through any avenue where he is in the least honored or respected, and he'll he'll come. And I know that the man who was singing that night was a, a man who loved the Lord. And uh, I remember the sense of his voice be, becoming a, a presence in that in that, that auditorium. 
as he sang those lyrics that I've quoted to you twice already. The great creator lying in a manger stall. And I got a picture of the creator of the universe humbling himself to the form of a baby in a manger. And I realized in that moment, you know, this is what an icon does. Protestants who don't know anything about iconography think it's idolatry. But the purpose of an icon is not to focus on the icon. The icon is, is a means of awakening the imagination, and then the icon points you away from itself toward what it's portraying. So uh, someone gave me an icon a few years ago of uh, Jesus destroying the power of death. And he's standing on the empty tomb, and in one hand he has uh, Adam, and the other hand he has Eve. And he's pulling Adam and Eve out of their graves in his resurrection. I saw that icon, and within 12 minutes I had written the entire text of God, a man, and a woman, uh, which is on the the new music uh, CD that we just released. I wrote it in 12 minutes. I, I don't think I erased a, a single line. It, it downloaded in me through the icon. And I got the whole, the whole lyric, the whole picture in those, in those moments looking at the icon. Because the icon, I wasn't looking at the icon. I was looking toward the icon and then when the icon got my attention, it happily went beyond itself and took me to the real Jesus resurrecting the real Adam and Eve out of the real grave and the real resurrection. All that was, was happening, see. And so uh, it was in this, this kind of atmosphere as a boy that God began to teach me who he was and what he was and who I was in relationship to him. It would take years, years for me to, to come out of the darkness that I was growing up in, fully turn away from it, and walk with the Lord. But God was patient and loving and faithful and present. And he would whisper to me in all these different avenues until he awakened in me a hunger to pursue those things on my own. And of course, even when I was pursuing them, his spirit was guiding me. I mean, if there ever was a, a story that uh, affirms the fact that I did not choose him, he chose me, it was uh, the way I came to know the Lord. He chose me. He came after me. He pursued me. And so um, awe and holiness and, and holy dread and fear of the Lord in the right sense. I love to talk about the fear of the Lord because uh, it was one of the most exciting things in the world to me when I became aware at times of a presence, sometimes in my room, sometimes walking across the football field, the very opposite place where you would think I would sense anything holy, unholy as my boyhood was. But I would be confronted with this this presence, and I understood when I read in Genesis, I think what is Genesis chapter thirty-two, where where Jacob has laid down and he's 
put his head on a, a stone and, and slept on that place. And when he woke up the next morning, he, he had had a dream of, of the Jacob's ladder and the angels ascending and descending. And he said, how, how awesome is this place? How dreadful is this place? One translation says, how fearful is this place? And I realized that one of the reasons why Christmas or whatever holiday you want to refer to, or even just Sundays, the reason it's so empty for so many of us is because there is no sense of that. I had more of an encounter with the eternal, holy reality walking across a football field as a, as a freshman in high school. It just a moment that a moment that made me want to go on my knees. And uh, then the, the way that atmosphere would sometimes just descend on me in my own room at night. Or the way I would then later experience it sometimes in church services where it, honestly it seemed like nobody else in the building was even aware. And I wasn't, I don't think I was arrogant enough to try to discern what they were experiencing it and what they weren't experiencing. I was too busy trying to cope with what my own heart was experiencing. But I did sometimes look around and wonder, am I the only one who feels this? Because everybody else just sounds, seems nonchalant or bored. And I feel like if, if, if I'm not careful, I'm going to burst in tears right here and go right flat on the floor. And it would be during, quite often, the singing of a certain hymn. Now, here again, I know uh, some of you are saying, please, Clay, don't go off on the whole argument over music styles and all of that that you've done so often before. I'll try not to, but uh, let me tell you just once again how often I'll be standing in a church service and I'm experiencing the boredom in the room. I'm just, I'm, I can't help it. I feel all of it. It's coming at me in uh, quadraphonic emotional uh, forces from every direction. Everybody behind me, in front of me, next to me is wishing this would hurry up and end so they could go do something more interesting. And it, it's, it's so utterly opposite of what I'm talking about when I talk about how awesome is this place? How dreadful is this place? What Jacob was talking about. I know what Jacob was talking about. And uh, I, I had no conception of the love of God fully. See, pe people want to go straight to the love of God. <clears throat> and I understand that because we all starve for love. But you see, if you separate the love of God from what I'm talking about here, you'll end up with empty, vapid, shallow, weak sentimentality, which is what I'm trying not to dwell on and I'm trying not to sound hypercritical of. And, and you know, I think y'all have heard me get into the hypercritical thing. I mean, I've, I've been venting on this subject for many years. And so, uh, you know, you've endured it and still put up with it, uh, or you wouldn't be listening to this message now. But I want to tell you that I think over the years I have been able to purge my soul of the venting and the frustration and even the self-righteous anger 
that might have been mixed in it, that certainly was mixed in it. Uh, and then I realized, you know, it's, it's not that I'm angry because they don't do church the way I want them to. That's not what I'm angry about. Because I've been in places where the style of the worship was not my cup of tea. But it was an awesome place. The presence was there. Because the heart focus was in such a position as to hunger and desire and honor that presence. And uh, and yet I, I will say still... One of the reasons why I would have those momentary encounters with the holy in those late teenage years that I'm describing had to do with the right formation of lyrics in hymns that produced the right sentiments in me that made me align my heart with the real God who really is there. You understand uh, if you write lyrics that are not truly representative of the real God, the spirit of truth cannot affirm those crooked lyrics. And so God won't just ignore the crookedness of the misrepresentation of his character and come flooding through the crooked stuff. I mean, he can. I maybe shouldn't say he won't, but I don't. I don't find that that's really much of an alignment with his his way. That's what you see throughout the Old Covenant when you have the, the specific commands given. This is how you're to build the tabernacle. This is how you're to build the temple. You're to do it exactly this way. Why? Because it is a map. It is a representation. It is an icon that has to point to the real. And if you do it incorrectly, it can't point to the real. And if the real tries to come through it, then it won't be the real coming through something that is accommodating the real. It'll be the real coming through something that's unreal and crooked. How can the real give blessing to the unreal and the crooked? And what normally happens then is the unreal and crooked spirits come in. Now, I know this can get really complicated, and I'm probably treading in dangerous waters here, but but I'm trying to just tell you what goes on in my own heart and just trust the Holy Spirit will take take it and make it valuable to you in your own experience. But I probably wouldn't talk like this in June or July or August, but uh, I, sure, I sure do move this direction this time of year because I, I'm so hungry for holiness. And holiness is not the same thing. You understand that holiness is not referring to moral character per se. Holiness certainly does relate to eventually moral behavior, but you don't begin, when you use the word holy, you're not referring to uh, drinking, smoking, carousing, ugly language, you know, holy person, holy man doesn't do those things. Well, a holy man doesn't do those things, but it's not because he's holy by not doing those things, it is because he has encountered something so awesome and so beyond the tawdry meaninglessness of those things that he has left them behind. And when you make the leaving of the tawdry things your goal, 
for themselves, you're just uh, sinking into boring, silly, legalistic religion. Which is why, you know, you have churches where, you know, we don't drink and we don't chew and we don't go with girls who do and we don't do this and we don't do that. And you say, well, why don't you? Well, because it's, it's part of holiness. No, it's got nothing to do with holiness. It's the shell left when real holiness has gone and all you have left is an empty shell of religion. And you can have a Pentecostal version of that, a Catholic version of that, a Presbyterian version of that. But um, I, I long, I long for the people that I teach, and just the people that I worship alongside of periodically. I long for them to be moved by the holy. And to understand what the holy is. And so the holiness of God is where you begin. You don't begin with the love of God. You say, well, the Bible says God is love. Yes, so certainly it says God is love. It also says that the, the fiery angels, the, the cherubim, stand before the presence of God and cover their face and cover their feet and and cry holy 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 and it's uh antiphonal that holy 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 like row 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 your boat it's just waves of holiness and it, what what does holiness mean it means that god is absolutely unutterably other than all creation that there is nothing in all of creation that can compare to him, uh, Exodus 15, who is like thee, O Lord, among the gods, majestic in holiness, terrifying in glorious deeds, doing wonders. See, you see those words? Holy, terrifying, wonder. Holy, terrifying, wonder. And this is what is missing in the body of Christ. I mean, and if that's missing, it's like saying this is what's missing in your car, the engine, the, the everything that makes everything else matter is missing. And so as a result of having no awe, no sense of holy wonder, no, no sense of the glory, see the glory of God is the holiness of God manifested. The kavod in Hebrew, it has to do with weight. It has to do with the, the heaviness, the heaviness. This is what Paul's talking about when he talks about the weight of glory uh, uh, in Romans 8. Uh, more, we have a more, anyway, the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day while we look not on the things which are seen, but on the, thing, on the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. And then he goes on and talks about that we are, we are changed from glory to glory by the presence of the Lord. It's in this real presence. It's not in textual support of dogmatic concepts. The, the only way the textual support of dogmatic concepts 
has any power in it is if it points to the real in such a way that it moves you toward union with the real. Okay? So holiness, the utter, unapproachable, unfathomable awe that you would experience in the presence, the real presence of the of the Holy God. Uh, you begin there. Now, now, Mary, you know, when Mary talks about this, her experience was very different. As a child, she moved around so much because her father was military and they moved 26 times in 12 years. And she became really kind of lonely as a child, and she began to, to interact with the Lord Jesus as her friend, and he, he was there for her. And it was only after she was drawn by his love that she began to come into a more mature understanding of his holiness. So I'm not trying to be dogmatic, <laughs> okay? But, but I want you to try to understand the heart of what I'm trying to say here, which is one reason why I'm not trying to be didactic. You know, I don't have an outline. I don't have a bunch of notes in front of me. Actually, I do. I've got tons of them, but I don't want to, I don't want to refer to them at the present moment. I, I want to point you towards something I know I have lived in communion with. It saved me from utter destruction. It came after me. I didn't know how to go after it. I'm using the word it in all reverence. Because at the time, I did experience it as an it. It was not him yet. It was it was a presence. It was an ex, uh, uh, an awareness. Now, I've told this story recently a couple of times. I'm a little hesitant to tell it because I want to make sure I have my details correct. But I I got this information from a man who has a, a good reputation. He's a he's a teacher in his own right and a, a respected leader in his area of the country. And he told me himself about the, this encounter that he had with a man who's a close friend of his. This man's uh, father is a, a world-class physicist and mathematician, a man who had actually turned down uh, the Nobel Prize for physics. He turned it down because he was not—he did not want to align himself with their politics, uh, which is a whole other subject. But his father had had a massive heart attack and was on the brink of death and was pulled back, thankfully, by great medical help. But he told his son, and then his son told my friend, this man told me, he said, I, I have seen what the scriptures are trying to describe. And uh, he used language that only a physicist would understand. And so even if I could quote it, I couldn't pass it on to you because neither one of us would understand it. But what he was saying was, I understand. I understand now. He said, I, I, saw, I saw God who is unseeable. I saw 
him who no man has seen nor can see. And he said, I saw him in the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, I want to tell you, son, when you get there, you will be so utterly thankful for Jesus. He said, it's not because the eternal spirit, the one that Paul refers to in 1 Timothy chapter 6 as the only wise God, the, the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. He said, I saw him, the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, and I saw that he was unseeable. He said, I, I, I can explain this to you in physics language, but I, I don't know how else to say it. I experienced him as beyond my ability to even contemplate or approach. And the only thing there that was familiar for me, that gave me a resting place and a place to, to relate, was the physical body in which Paul says dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And uh, I have tons of notes here that I was going to get into on how we need to learn to understand how Christ, how Messiah, how the Lord Jesus is both man and God, and that he is not God Jr., you know, I've said this for years, and people, I don't, you know, it's, it's not the kind of subject you can just talk over for a few minutes and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it now. But Jesus is not God Jr. He is not a created being. He is himself the creator of the universe. He is not only the creator of the universe, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's boy, the carpenter who was raised by Joseph is the sustainer of the universe. He sustains the universe by the power of his command. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He is the exact image of the invisible God. Uh, and he, John tells us in John chapter 1, uh, No man has seen God at any time the only begotten God, the original text is clear, the God, the only begotten, has made himself known, has made the Father known. Jesus is the heart in God. He is the heart of God. He is God expressing his heart to the universe. I'm not talking about some kind of demiurge that Jesus is a an extension of a part of God. That would be wrong language. See, this is why you get in trouble when you start trying to describe uh, ultra-dimensional reality in mere third-dimensional language. That's why we have been given the prayer language of tongues, to be able to speak of mysteries that the mind can't grasp and to worship with them. I don't know what I would do if I couldn't pray in, in other tongues. I think my head would pop off.
But anyway, my point is, as we worship him in this holiness, this sense of of his holiness, then you begin to contemplate that this unknowable, unapproachable, invisible, immortal, eternal king of the universe, the very the very center, what the Bible calls the Pantocrator, the the power that rules everything, knows your name and has sought to come after you and whispers to you in your loneliness and comes present to you in your pain. And this is what the Hebrew writers just rejoice over, over and over. Psalm 147, uh, he, he knows all the stars. He knows them by name, and yet he dwells with him who is of a broken heart. Isaiah 57, God uh, creates the heavens and the earth and sits on the circle of the earth before him. All creationists are like grasshoppers, and yet he is very present to them who is him who is of, of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So then, see, if God is holy and unutterably awesome to the point that there are times when all you can do is get on your knees and get on your face and cover your head and say, holy, 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 or not say a word, then he becomes worthy. See, worth, worth, worship. Why is our worship so vapid? Because there's nothing worthy in it. There's, there's very little, I mean, let's just be honest, folks, except on rare occasions, there's very little portrayed in a public worship service in many circles, not in all circles, I know, that doesn't call you only about as high as your speakers in your car go, because it's just really a reproduction of the same sound you have driving to work listening to the radio. I'm not saying God can't bless listening to the radio or what comes through the radio, but there's times when you want to go far, far above and beyond that which can be communicated in a pop song on a radio station going down the road. And, uh, hey, I know that holy, austere worship can also be played on your stereo. I know that. I just hope you'll get my point. It's almost impossible to make these points. When you're, when you're bowing with other Christians and you're all singing the same thing, and you're all seeing the same thing, and you're all, your hearts are moving in unity, and you are providing a throne, according to Psalm 22, you are providing a throne for the Holy One to come and sit upon. Uh, he, he sits enthroned upon the praises of his people. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious. Your great name we praise. That's just going to affect you a lot different than singing a song that could easily be turned into a romantic love song sung to another human being, a creature instead of the creator. 
And when all of the focus in our songs is on the love of God and the intimacy of his care for us and presence to us, and those are all good things. But when you begin there, or that's all you ever focus on, you don't just begin there, that's all you ever do. Then you lose the sense of awe that I'm talking about, see? Then awe communicates worthiness, and worthiness is the meaning of the word worship. So your worship is cut off at the legs, and let me tell you what else it does. It, it Unconsciously, you, you may not have ever seen the connection, but when you have a God who is not awe-inspiring to the point of putting you on your face, you will not think he's worthy of trust. You will not think he's worthy of prayer. You will not think he's worthy of spending time with. Uh, you, uh, you see, when I'm when I'm in touch with this sense of of the awe of God, my prayer time goes past me so fast that I just uh, have to add more time to it. But if I'm caught up in the helter-skelter of the typical postmodern emptiness and vapidness of, of uh, Christian culture, uh, I'll pray and say, well, you know, I've got so many things I need to be doing. I shouldn't be spending so much time here. How is it that time in the presence of the, of the creator of time is wasting time? How is it possible that being in the presence of the one who knows the end from the beginning and has everything in my life under his watch care and who acts, actually asks only very little of me, all he asks of me is that I honor him and love him and give myself to him. And I find that if I've done that for 15 minutes, I feel like I'm wasting valuable time that I could be spending on something more important. See, this is the kind of mindset that comes out of a mind devoid of a holy imagination in which the holy eternal one has been clearly laid before you. David said, I have set the Lord always before me, therefore I shall not be moved. How did he set the Lord before him in his holy imagination? And how was the holy imagination awakened and fed by the revelation of Scripture? So Scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit, informs our imagination, which informs our intellect, which informs our will, and causes us to put ourselves willfully, purposefully, and faithfully in that presence, not only corporately, but also privately. But just imagine what a corporate worship service would be like if everyone present had this same understanding of what is happening and what could happen. So, that brings us to the celebration of this time of year. I wish I could spend just the rest of our time just on the the awe and the holiness and the terror. Because it's a wonderful terror. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Those who have the fear of the Lord don't fear anything else. 
And the perfect love of God casts out all fear. See, so you, you begin with the, the, the fear that, that puts you on your face. And then you find that in that holy presence, this, this unutterable holiness loves you. That he has become human. That he has extended himself into his creation as a baby through the womb of a woman and that this baby is the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all creation, the ruler of the universe. You know, Mary, did you know your baby boy will one day walk on water. Mary, did you know? Your baby boy will save our sons and daughters. Did you know this baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know your baby boy has walked where angels trod when you've kissed your little baby, when you've kissed the face of God? The deaf will hear, the blind will see, the dead will live again. The lame will leap, the tongue will speak their praises to the Lamb. Mary, did you know your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know your baby boy will one day rule all nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect Lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I Am. This time of year, it's really easy to find lyrics like that that can move you in the direction of the worship of the holy. I remember again another one of those moments in childhood, that uh, late childhood, early teen years, that, that shook me awake. We were just doing our normal Christmas singing, you know, mundane, kind of boring, by rote. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just flashed into my mind from We Three Kings. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. I mean, I don't think anybody ever taught me this. I don't remember anybody pointing it out to me. All of a sudden, I realized those were the three gifts of the wise men. Gold for kingship frankincense for the worship of God and in 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 uh, myrrh for for burial king and god and sacrifice you know you can read it mundanely boring or or you can you can have the holy spirit take you into it and take it into you and tr transform your whole view of the world. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, 
Late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. I hope you have a blessed and godly and Christ-centered holiday. Thanks for listening. We'll talk, Lord willing, next year.